1: Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I am your host, Rich Lamello. Today's guest is considered one of the greatest cornerbacks of all time. He had 57 interceptions and 13 fumble recoveries in his career, not to mention another four picks and two fumble recoveries in the playoffs. He was a starting corner on four Super Bowl champions, with the Pittsburgh Steelers, and he's been in the Pro Football Hall of Fame since 1989. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Mel Blunt. Mel, welcome to Chasing Hardware.
2: Hey, Rich, it's a pleasure. Good to talk to you.
1: Good. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to our talk here today. Um, Mel, you grew up uh, in, in rural Georgia, right? You went to Lyons High School Which was a segregated high school, and you played football, basketball, baseball, and track.
2: That's correct. That's correct, Rich. Uh, You know, back then the schools were segregated, and um, I went to an all black uh, high school and, you know, played every sport that they had to offer. And
1: um, in football, you were both a wide receiver and a defensive back,
2: correct? I played defensive back, played defensive end. Um, on the defense and play wide receiver and also ran kickoffs and punch back.
1: Okay. And of, of the sports of, you know, football, hoops, baseball, and track, which was your favorite? Was it football or was it something else?
2: No, man. I loved basketball. And I was a pretty good basketball player. I, I had um, just a great career in high school playing basketball, but I got a scholarship offer uh, to Southern University in football and i'll never forget when i got to southern man we had a you know the dormitories had intramural teams and each dormitory had a had a basketball team and so we we played a lot of basketball and i always loved the game um and i think you know with the proper coach and i probably could have made it to the next level but uh football turned out pretty good
1: yeah yeah i think uh, very few people would uh have issue with that. Now, remind me, you were the youngest of 11 and family didn't have a lot in terms of means, but your parents preached hard work and and seven ended up going to college.
2: That's correct. Um, I was the youngest of 11 kids. Um, There were four girls and uh, seven boys. And I tell you what, we were, the older I get, the more I realize how rich we were. Because we didn't have a lot of material things, but we had a lot of love for one another, a lot of hard work on the farm, uh, a lot of discipline, a lot of, a lot of church. Man went to church every Sunday. We would walk, and I tell my kids this now that we would walk four or five miles to church, and they look at me and "Oh, Daddy, you all didn't do that." But that was the way things were back then. Uh, a lot of times we would hook up the mule and wagon, and we would get on the wagon and go to church, and a lot of times we would walk, and um, I tell you what, uh, those were great memories. The only thing I regret, Rich, is we didn't have cameras. We we, we didn't have the money to have the luxury of having a camera where you could take pictures, man. I would love, I have all these memories in my mind from picking cotton and working in the tobacco and plying mules and riding bear bike and all those things, but um, we wasn't able to capture it because we didn't have we didn't have any cameras around.
1: Right. That's interesting. And and so and so you you got the offer to go to Southern. Um, w- were there other schools that you were considering or that were looking for you? I mean, I know the SEC was not integrated, so that wasn't an option. Um, but was it was it only Southern or were there other schools talking to you?
2: Well, it's really interesting how that offer from Southern came about. We were playing a team in Meadow, Georgia, and it was on their home field. And I had just an awesome game. I scored five touchdowns. I had a kickoff return and uh, had several, uh, had four touchdowns from, from being a wide receiver. And one of the officials who was officiating the game knew someone at Southern. And they called out there and said, you all need to come look at this kid from Lyons. But it was called Lyons Industrial High School. And so uh, I, didn't, I didn't know anybody was watching. I didn't know any of the officials knew that. But that was the story that was told to me by the head coach. The head coach from Southern University came, and we didn't know he was coming. Uh, he found out where I lived. And he talked to my father, because I wasn't there. I was off at a basketball game out of town. And so he talked to my father, said he wanted to offer me a scholarship. And my father made an executive decision that, okay, you offer know, him a scholarship. He'll come. So uh, when I got back home, my father said, son, there was some coach here from Southern University, and he offered you a scholarship. And I told him, you would come, and that's, that, that, that's a true story. That's how it all went down. And don't you know, um, I went to Southern University, and the thing I think that really got my father was he promised me a job. Uh, if I would come as soon as I finished high school, that he would, he would provide me a job and they would give me uh, a scholarship. So I went to Southern University. When I got out there, They put me with the uh, the police uh, campus security, and I was a traffic director standing in the middle of the street directing traffic. And if you know anything about Louisiana and, and the heat during the during the summer, man, it was it was awfully hot. But one of the greatest compliments I got from the police captain was that I was one of the hardest working people that he had ever had or had ever employed, and uh, I, I credit that to my experience on the farm from doing hard work and, and just, you know, knowing, knowing the importance of, of putting forth a good effort. And so that's how I got to Southern University, but I probably didn't, get a, didn't have an offer. I uh, probably could have went to Savannah State or Fort Valley State, some of the other HBCUs, but southern came along and made the offer my dad he my dad accepted it on my behalf like I said that's an executive decision he made and it turned out pretty good
1: yeah how funny is that <laughs> you come home from a <laughs> uh, basketball practice and dad tells you you're going to southern
2: <laughs> yeah that's true and uh, you know what uh, he uh, my dad was a wise man i think he realized hey they they're going to give you a scholarship and a job. You know, I can, I can, I can make that decision. That's a no brainer. And that's what he did. Yeah. And so
1: you get to Southern and around the same time you get there, a six, eight wide receiver shows up named Harold Carmichael. And there's also, so, and you were, they were thinking of having you as a wide receiver, right? But all of a sudden they've got Harold Carmichael and that kind of leads to you switching over to defensive back.
2: Well, here's what happened. Harold Carmichael came a year after I got there. When I became a sophomore, he had just he came in as a freshman, but they had two All-American wide receivers that was there, and so I was on the scout team. <clears throat> I was running running plays for the defense and and uh, one of the coaches just came up to me and asked me to say, "Hey, um, we're thinking about putting you on defense. can you play on the defense?" I said, "Yeah." So they stuck me out there on the on the corner. And um what happened was it was the last game of the year, and the last game of the year is always Grambling and Southern. And James Shaq Harris, who went on to play Pro Ball, in fact, was the first black quarterback to um to play and get drafted in the in the modern day era of football. And so it was This game was at Southern University. I intercepted three passes as a freshman, and the rest is history. Um, and I tell you what, uh, and I, when I see James Shaq Harris now, I always tell him, I say, man, I really appreciate you jump-starting my career. You know, we always teasing and rubbing each other. But, yeah, that, that's kind of how it all happened. That's how it got started.
1: That's pretty cool and And Shaq Harris, yeah, for the listener, uh is the first black quarterback to open a season as a starting quarterback in the NFL with the Rams in the early seventies
2: um, yeah, he's a tremendous player and and great great man in fact we're um we're going to New Orleans this weekend to kick off the Legacy Bowl, which uh is kind of the brainchild of uh Doug Williams and James Shaq Harris to uh recognize. Athletes that are coming from historical black colleges. And so this will be the first year of it uh, in New Orleans at Tulane Stadium. So we're excited about that.
1: Oh, that's cool. And Williams and Harris also started up, I I think I've got this right, they started up the HBCU Hall of Fame, right? The Football Hall of Fame?
2: They sure did. And I'm on that board. uh, But it was their idea to start a black college college. Football Hall of Fame. And so you got guys like uh, Willie Lanier, Art Shell, myself, James Harris, uh, Doug Williams, um, who are uh, basically board members of that uh, Black College Hall of Fame. And so we're working real hard to try to let, you know, black kids know that they can go to historical black colleges and still realize their dreams if they're trying to pursue um, a career in sports. Yeah.
1: And, that, and that's something I'm going to circle back to in a little bit. Well, I'm actually going to touch on it a few times throughout the interview, but I, I do want to talk about like, the current state of HBCUs, but maybe a little bit later. Um, while you're at Southern, you, you mentioned playing against Shaq Harris. His receiver is Charlie Joyner at Grambling. You're also playing against Harold Jackson of Jackson State and Kenny Burrow at Texas Southern, who most people will remember became double zero with the Oilers um, and, and probably many others that I'm not listing. But tell me about some of those guys who you're going up against uh, in your college days. And then, you know, you turn around and you're playing them on Sundays, uh, you know, just a few years later.
2: Well, you know, you mentioned guys like uh, Charlie Jorner, who I played against in college. Um, played against him twice a year when he was with Houston, and then he was with Cincinnati, and he wound up his career in San Diego. He's a Hall of Famer. Played against uh, Harold Jackson, who, uh, you know, Tyreek Hill and those kids, he, they probably couldn't outrun him in the 40 or the 100-yard dash. He was just a tremendous athlete, smooth, had a lot of gears. Uh, so there wasn't a lack of talent Uh, back in those days and, uh, you know, played against some great players. Um, And then, you know, when you meet up in the pros, it's a good feeling because it's a brotherhood. You come from uh, HBCU and you're in the pros, and we cared about one another, and we wanted to see each other succeed in what we were doing. So it's a great great brotherhood of, of men who played at historical black colleges, you know, because we have a lot in common, obviously, and uh, you want to you want to see guys excel and do well. But those are just a few of the great players uh, that I played against uh, during my careers in uh, my college career.
1: Yeah, and 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 just one last thing to touch on at Southern. Well, two last things to touch on. One, so Carmichael comes in. He was like six
2: foot eight, right? Carmichael six foot eight. I played against him. Um, three years, because he was a year behind me, (laughs) and and I was at an event in Philadelphia that he held, and he he swear that I used to beat him up in practice all the time, and that's what made him uh, uh, excel and succeed in the NFL. And I, I tell people all the time, I say, you know, Carmichael, he credited me for beating him up, but I think the reality of it is we were good for each other because, I mean he was a just a a tremendous uh, athlete catch the ball could run and somebody that big is something that they hadn't seen
1: yeah yeah and and also when you were playing defensive
2: back right in front
1: of you at linebacker was Isaiah Robertson who had a hell of a career with the Rams and the Bills right
2: oh it's no question you know we have we just had some great talent Isaiah Robertson Number one pick for the Rams. Ray Jones, another cornerback on the other side. Number two pick for Philadelphia. Kenny Ellis, uh, just a tremendous uh, athlete. Kickoff, punt returns, running back. Uh, went to Green Bay in the fourth round. Uh, Alvin Roche. We just had, I think out of my senior class, we had 11 guys to get drafted in the, uh, in the National Football League, and that was in 1970. And so we played against a lot of talent, um, even though, you know, the 60s, you know, segregation was still in place, um, you know, but there was so much talent. And I think when we got to the NFL, we were ready for that level of football because of the talent that we had experienced in college.
1: Yeah. You know, and speaking of segregation, so Southern is in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, obviously right down the street from LSU. Uh, was there, I, I know you, you guys didn't, couldn't play each other, but did you ever cross paths with the guys at LSU? Did you ever, were you able to ever to kind of, you know, measure yourself against them as
2: players? No, there was no way. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, I never knew, I knew it was in Baton Rouge, but I've never been on their campus uh, during the time I was, uh, at Southern and, you know, we, you know, if people remember in the sixties, I went to Southern in 1966. I mean, there was segregation all throughout the South. And so there wasn't any, you know, black, black athletes and black kids wasn't going to LSU. LSU kids wasn't coming to Southern. And so, you know things obviously changed, but that's that's just the way things were. Sure. So, so then,
1: so then it's 1970. The Steelers have just been not successful in any way um, as a team, and they draft uh, Terry Bradshaw in the first round, and they pick a six foot three, two hundred and fifteen pound cornerback from Southern in the third round. And you and Bradshaw come in together Um, the year before they had drafted. I I guess I'll set this up this way. Everybody talks about the 74 draft for the Steelers, which obviously is an incredible draft. But if you look at the five or six years in continuum, it's got to be the greatest, you know, five or six straight years of drafting any team has ever done. The year before you, Joe Green comes in, John Kolb, Elsie Greenwood, Terry Hanratty, who would be the backup. You and Bradshaw come in in 70. In 71, this is an incredible draft. Jack Hamm, Larry Brown, Dwight White, Ernie Holmes, and Mike Wagner. And then the next year, Franco Harris, Steve Furness, and Joe Gilliam. Then JT Thomas, and then the 74 draft Lambert, Swan, Stallworth, Webster, and Donnie Schell as a free agent. I mean, that that's just the most incredible six year run of drafting. I think any team's ever done.
2: You have to give credit to the scouting department, obviously, but I think you have to give a lot of credit to Chuck. No, because he knew, uh, what kind of athlete he was looking for. Um, and so we got lucky. I mean, I—I w I wouldn't call that six year draft stretch. Luck. I think it's a lot of hard work, uh, knowing what you're looking for. And, um, you know, sticking to that formula, which is finding guys who are smart, finding guys who have speed, have the ability, and guys who have character. And out of that group of guys, you know, when you start in 1969, Joe Green, a Hall of Famer, Elsie Greenwood should be a Hall of Famer. And then you go to the next year, in and, and 1970, you got Bradshaw's a Hall of Famer, I'm a Hall of Famer, Ron Shanklin was the number two pick, was a great player, made All Pro, and it just gets better. Like you said, each draft pick, each draft just kept getting better and better. Uh, Jack Ham, a Hall of Famer. Franco is a Hall of Famer, and when we get to the the 1974 draft, you got Star Wars, Swan, Webster, Donny Shell, and Jack Lambert. That's five guys out of that draft that are Hall of Famers. And that, that's just incredible. Like, like you said, it's just a tremendous um, um, years of drafting great players with, with great character who you know, really wanted something out of life.
1: Yeah. And, and yeah, it's funny. Uh, there was a great quote from, uh, from Chuck Knoll. He said, um, he said, "I wanted self-motivated players who that he could then teach." And I I think it's pretty self-evident that that's what he did. He found self-motivated players um, who were were willing to be taught. um, I'd like for you to talk about Bill Nunn. Uh, For the listener, Bill Nunn was a sports writer and later an editor for the Pittsburgh Courier, which was a historically black newspaper. Um, And he, from the early 50s, was picking his HBCU All-American team. And he started kind of working with the Steelers and they ultimately hired him uh, full time. Can you kind of talk a little bit about Bill, maybe what your relationship was with him, but also just the overall impact he had on the Steelers?
2: Bill Nunn, uh, you can't write the history of the Steelers without this man's uh, fingerprints all over it. Bill Nunn, what really happened, Bill Nunn was a, editor, or was a writer, a sports writer, like you said, for the Pittsburgh Courier, which was a black paper and still in existence today. But Bill Nunn would write about sports, and he really was kind of getting on the Steeler organization for not drafting African-American kids or going, you know, at those schools. So Dan Rooney had a meeting with him and hired him. And his, and Bill started going into these uh, historical black colleges, and he found guys like Elsie Greenwood, and um, and the Mel Blunts and the Donnie Sales and the Star Wars, um, Ernie Holmes. I mean Glenn Edwards. And and so when you talk about when you talk about the run and the drafting uh, of the Steelers, I mean there's no way. You can even talk about anything that happened in the 70s and not talk about Bill Nunn because he he had such an influence on, on draft day. And the thing about it was that the Rooney family, Dan Rooney had a lot of, I mean, he had confidence and trust. He trusted Bill Nunn's judgment, and they listened to him. And so that's why you have guys like Starworth who they found in the fourth round. And there's an interesting story about the Starworth um, draft. They Bill Nunn went down, and, you know, back in those days, they didn't have a lot of film and video. So the film that they had, Bill Nunn took it. So other scouts, when they came to Alabama's A&M looking uh, to find film on John Starworth, there was none. Because Bill <laughs> Nunn had it. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's how Starworth lasted to the uh, fourth round, and just you know, just stories like that. And then going into these colleges and talking to players and really seeing and looking at film on guys. So anyway, uh, he was he was uh, a big part of everything that we did, and um, and everything that the Steelers did, even after after we all had retired.
1: And it's great to see that uh, was it last year, right? He got elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame.
2: He's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and and, and not just for what he did with the Steelers, but I think just his influence throughout the NFL and and um, on among other scouts. Uh, you know, they they learned a lot from Bill, and they, the guy had an eye for talent, but he also had a formula. And he had uh, the kind of personality that people could talk to. And he was he was an uh, educator, a visionary. He, you know, the guy knew what he was doing and he knew what it took, what kind of players it took to win.
1: And tell me about Chuck. No, tell me about being a 22 year old kid. You've gone to a segregated high school. You've gone to a HBCU college this is going to be your first time you're playing for a white coach and playing with, with, with and against white players. Tell me what the experience was like. And, and you Oh, by the way, you're coming up North. Tell me about that experience.
2: Well, you know, Rich um, it was, it was a, a cultural shock obviously um, you know, it was so many things you had to adjust to um, you know, you mentioned uh, adjusting to a white coach. Uh, and playing with white players, uh, and then the environment. Pittsburgh, you come into a a northern city, cold weather. You know, I never never seen snow before, and just you know, trying to trying to make a, a a professional football team. And I think the the thing that that really kept me going was just my confidence in myself, and knowing that I had the ability to compete and compete at a high level. Uh, it was different, uh, you know, uh, being coached by a white guy, a white man, uh, especially, you know, I, I couldn't stand for people to yell at me. And then, uh, you know, if I, if I made a mistake, I, I was the kind of athlete that it was a lot, you could get a lot more out of me if you, talk to me and explain to me, you know, what I did wrong versus yelling at me and, and screaming at me. And then when that happened, the only thing I could think about was go back to things that I had seen in the South and, and seeing how white people was treating blacks in the South, and it, and it wasn't good at all, believe me. And so, therefore, my reaction wasn't good. I, w- I could get really rebellious. Um, and uh, so that was just a, a period of growing and maturing as a person. But those were some of the challenges that, uh, that I had to deal with personally. And, uh, you know, I'm just glad that uh, Chuck Noll, the Rooney organization, they, they really allowed guys and gave us opportunities to grow and mature as people, instead of trying to make us robots. They, they let everybody be who they were and they, They gave you enough room to uh, to make those mistakes and to grow as people.
1: Yeah, and Chuck Knoll, you know, just over the years reading different things about him, you know, you have some coaches who you know sleep in their office and you know burn you know the 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 candles late. He he wanted everybody to go home and be with their family at dinner at night. And I remember reading one time, it might have been when he passed away somebody talked to him about that, you know, he wasn't a very big motivator. And his quote was, if I have to motivate them, I have to cut them. (laughs) You know, basically, the Uh point. you know, these guys are adults. If I have to, you know, give them a rah-rah speech, they're not the guy I want in my locker room. Um, What was, what was Chuck like for you?
2: Well, Chuck was a smart guy. Chuck was quiet, but he was the kind of guy, like the old commercial said about EF Hutton, when he spoke, everybody listened. Uh, he was a no-nonsense guy. He told you the way it was. Uh, I think he was fair with everybody. Uh, that doesn't mean that he treated everybody the same, but I think he was fair with everyone. And I like Chuck. I think anybody who played for Chuck would say that they liked him. They just probably didn't know him like some coaches were just outgoing and and you know, friendly and carry on conversations with you. Um, he wasn't that kind of guy. And then you got to understand Chuck Brown, I mean, Chuck Noel came from under the uh, Paul Brown um, coaching tree. And Paul Brown, that's the way he was. He was, in fact, you know, some reporter uh, named him the Emperor. You know, he was the Emperor, yeah. uh, which means he, he was, you know, he was above everybody else and what he said that's, that's what went. There was no question about who was in charge of the organization or the football team anyway. And so, you know, the old I get, the more I can appreciate the way he was.
1: Right. Yeah. It was funny. I, I interviewed uh, Charlie Joyner for this podcast a few months ago. And, and as you pointed out earlier, he had played in Cincinnati for three or four years uh, before San Diego. And, and that's what he was saying about Paul Brown. He's like anything that happened in that organization Paul Brown knew about, and it wasn't just on the football field. And, uh, you know, I think that the guys who learned from him, Bill Walsh, Chuck Knoll, Don Shula, they picked up on that quickly, Weebu Bank. Um, I think that was kind of a recurring theme in his coaching tree.
2: Oh, yeah. He, he de- definitely was one of the uh, one of the uh, coaching tree members of the Paul Brown tree. And, um, you know, we used to have those bowels, man, I mean, twice a year. And Paul Brown was in Cleveland. Then he, when he went to Cincinnati and formed that team, and I tell you what, when we went against Cincinnati, when Chuck Noll went against Paul Brown, man, it was intense. I mean, he you, he was a different week of practice uh, because, you know, I guess out of respect and just wanting to beat the guy who he learned from, and so it it was it was something special.
1: Yeah, oh, that's that's fascinating. That's interesting. Um but and yet it's funny I was reading about the 74 season Super Bowl and full disclosure I'm both a Vikings and a Browns fan so uh you you were you were a thorn in my side for my entire childhood um but the 74 season Super Bowl your first Super Bowl um I remember reading that you know you guys get down to New Orleans and is it, was it the case that Chuck, you know, kind of let you guys go out a few nights? And then as, the, as you got closer to the game, it was time to tighten up and get ready. Well,
2: that was the way he was. He wanted us to enjoy the moment, uh, enjoy um, the fact that we made it to the Super Bowl. But he, was, he wanted us to have fun. But then when it came time to get ready for the game, you know, he said, all right, guys, everybody in the rooms, you know, starting Wednesday, we're going to work. And um, I think the results is uh, evidence of the kind of leader, the kind of coach he was. Uh, and he knew he knew what what buttons to push to get his players ready. And um, it, it, I tell you, man, I couldn't have asked for a better career. Couldn't ask for better coaches, even though there were times when you know maybe you didn't agree or we didn't get along. But the bottom line is we. Got the job done. Uh, we were able to do something that hadn't been done before, and um, just be a part of a great legacy that was left for the Pittsburgh Steelers and the city of Pittsburgh.
1: Sure, and and when you guys got there, like I said, you know the team had got. I think they were like one and thirteen the year before, and then they win a few more games that first year. I think they were five and nine, and then six and eight, and then the breakthrough season is seventy two. And you guys are playing the Raiders and, uh, uh, the Raiders score a touchdown to go up late in the game. And then the immaculate reception happens and you're on the sidelines. Tell me, tell me, you know, kind of what your take on that play was, what was going through your mind at that point?
2: Well, I was on the sideline and, you know, we were hoping for something, uh, would happen. Uh, we wasn't, <laughs> the, you know, the immaculate reception, uh, reception wasn't, um, you know, what we were expecting. But I, I just kind of felt like, okay, we got to get this ball down where we can score. And don't you know, Bradshaw eluded uh, a couple of pass rushes and just, I mean, this guy had a cannon on it, on his arm and he just slung it. And, I saw the hit Tatum made on Frenchie Fuqua, but I didn't see Franco. That When I saw the hit, then the next thing, I heard the crowd screaming and, and going crazy, and then I see Franco running with the ball. And, uh, you know, you watch that play over and over. Uh, it's, it was just an incredible play. It was really uh, a miracle. And 1972, we... We had a young team, but we didn't know how to win. Uh, that play happened and put us uh, in the playoffs uh, against the Miami Dolphins. That that's the year Miami went undefeated. Miami came to Pittsburgh uh, and brought the weather with them from Miami. And uh, this is in December, and we got sixty some degree weather um, in the championship game. This is the AFC Championship. We beat Miami. We're going to the Super Bowl, and we're going to play the Redskins that they played. But, um, you know, it, it was just one of those magical moments in sports that, you know, as a, as a teammate I was a part of. And I'll tell you what, it was Franco, our team changed when Franco came. When Franco came, we, we didn't lose. I mean, we were in the playoff consistently every year after Franco got here. And that's when we start winning championships.
1: Right, right. And so you, so Miami wins that ga- you know, that next game, and, and they go on to their undefeated season. They win next year over the Vikings. And then you guys get to the Super Bowl, and uh, you beat Minnesota. Um, tell me about that game. You, you had an interception in that game. Tell me about that. You know, now you've been in the league for five years, and you know it all comes together. Um, tell me about that feeling, you know, as the, as the, you know, game is winding down, your defense has completely shut down the Minnesota offense. I think they ran for like less than 20 yards. Um, tell me what the thinking was there.
2: Well, going into the week, uh, you know, we just, we were confident because people had said that we didn't belong there and that the Vikings, you know, they was the purple people eaters and they were going to just chew us up and, um, but if you start up front with our front four, Elsie Greenwood uh, just had a tremendous game. Dwight White comes out of the hospital. He was sick, had some kind of virus, and and plays a great game. Ernie Holmes and Joe Green. I mean, guys just, Fran Tarkenton had nowhere to go, no time to, to throw. And our secondary and, and, and linebackers, I mean we were blanking in receivers. Glenn Edwards makes a big time hit that pops the ball up in the air that I runs under, I run under to make the interception. Just big plays after big plays. Elsie batting the ball around like a volleyball. So we we completely dominated the Vikings. And I think when we won that Super Bowl, I think the confident level of each player Went to a whole new level, and we realized that hey, we've arrived and we can compete with anybody. And so we come back in 1975 and and do it all over again. I had a great uh, year, being Defensive Player of the Year, leading the league in interceptions, uh, and and everybody just guys had big time year, big time seasons uh, and, at key positions. You know whether it was the running back and Franco or the wide receivers, Bradshaw, Shaw. Everybody played up to their potentials, and, you know, we, we get to another Super Bowl. And we were even better the year 1976, <clears throat> had the best team, in my opinion, uh, of all the teams that we had, and we were on our way marching towards the Super Bowl again and went to Baltimore uh, Burt Jones and Roger Carr and, and uh, Raymond cheston and all those guys they had a great team over there but we beat them but we lost Rocky Blair and Franco Harris in that game and so when we, get to L, when we get to the Oakland Raiders in a championship game out there to go to the Super Bowl we had no running game and so we lost that game but we had a, we had a tremendous team just loaded with talent uh, but we couldn't run the ball, and uh, the Raiders uh, won that game. And so we come back. Uh, that was in 1976. So we come back in 1977. We miss again. But then the next two years, 78 and 79, obviously, was great years, and we wind up winning two more Super Bowls.
1: Yeah. And that, that 76 team, you guys get off to a bit of a slow start. You're 1-4. And Bradshaw is hurt. He gets hit by right. T. J. Jones of Cleveland. You guys win your last nine games. And this is just an incredible statistic. You give up 28 points in those nine games. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that is just, you know, most teams are happy to you know, come out of a game with 28 points. Um, your, your overall uh, points per game is 10 points per game given up that year. Uh, yeah. And I've, I've read, I've read in some places where people say it's, you know, the best team of all time. And, you know, sadly, ironically doesn't win a championship.
2: Well, there would be debates about whether or not we had the greatest defense or whether it was the Chicago bears or the purple people eaters or the fearsome foursome. I mean, you can go on with defensive names, but sure. I think we could stack our record up against anybody and accomplishments and the, accomplishments. Um, and, you know where guys are once they their careers are over. How many guys we have in the Hall of Fame versus? Uh, I think I think our stats would match up against anybody's. But yeah, we we had we had some great players, man. And uh, I think uh, it goes back to when we started out talking about the the draft and the players and and really what kind of players Chuck Noll wanted guys who would motivate themselves and then have to be motivated. And so, yeah, it, it was a great run. Yeah. You, you had a
1: great quote.
2: You said you're no
1: better than the people you're surrounded with and you could go down the line on this team and any player could be picked as an all pro. And it's true. I mean, <laughs> you know, year to year, you're different of the 22 were being picked. Um, I, I, the, the, one of the stats that I find just amazing is your defensive backfield, So you and JT Thomas, Wagner, Mike Wagner, Glenn Edwards, and Donnie Schell, between the four of you – I'm sorry, between the five of you over your careers had over 200 interceptions. I mean, obviously you had 57, but that is just a staggering number for four or five guys who played in the 70s when teams were just not throwing that much. I mean, through the mid-70s, I think the year – well, we're going to get to the Mel Blunt rule in a second, but the year before that rule was put in place – Teams were throwing for less than 150 yards a game. So
2: I know, you know. but that's, that's, that that stat you just mentioned mentioned is very interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know that out of the five guys that we had over 200 uh, interceptions. That's that's pretty impressive. But um, hey, look, you know, a lot of that uh, football football is the ultimate team sport, as you know. So. When you're playing behind guys like Elsie Greenwood and Joe Green and Dwight White and Ernie Holmes, I mean, you if you're in the kind of player, you should come up with some interceptions. So a lot of that is credited to those guys and, and you know, the team concept of playing team defense. But it, it's still pretty impressive.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I interviewed Gary Fencek uh, about a month ago. And he said something something kind of similar, but, you know, he said, you know, teams try to figure out, well, how do we, you know, get a better pass defense? He's like, I have an idea. Get a better pass rush. <laughs> it's amazing yeah. what happens when you've got four studs up front.
2: <laughs> uh, it's no question. It all starts up front, man. And I think when you look at the game we just saw against uh, the Bengals uh, with the Rams, you saw what happened when, it, when the game was on the line. Those guys up front, man, and uh, Aaron Dawn and – you know, his crew, they, that's where it's all, it all starts up there. So if you want a good pass defense, get a good pass rusher. Yeah.
1: So, so now, so we just, we just referenced this a second ago. So in 1977 uh coming in, teams are averaging less than 150 yards passing a game scoring's at a 40 year low. They make two, the league makes two big rule changes. The first one is, Offensive linemen can now extend their arms to kind of better block and protect quarterbacks, because I think the year before, a a big number of quarterbacks had gotten hurt, to include yours, um, Terry Bradshaw. So all of a sudden, offensive linemen are in a little bit better position, but in a lot better position to protect. Um, And then there's the rule that you can no longer hit receivers going down the field. Uh, There are no there are no hits after five yards from the line of scrimmage. And it becomes it's called the Mel Blunt rule. Um, now Bob Trumpy, who you played against tight end for the Bengals for years. And then a NBC announcer said, there are very few guys in NFL history who are so good at something that they changed the rules because of it. And, you know, obviously (laughs) about as big a, you know, accolade as you can get from the competition. Um, tell, tell me, and, and I, I, I've, you know, kind of read up on your take on it. Tell me, you know, kind of your initial take and then, you know, kind of how you view it now.
2: Well, Rich, look, I when they first changed the rule, I'll never forget Chuck Noak, he he had all of us I wasn't staying in Pittsburgh at the time, so he flew all the defensive backs in, went over the rule, and uh, talked about how we were going to adjust to it and, and I'll never forget he was saying, Mel, this this is because of you. In other words, uh they named this rule the Mel Blunt rule. And so I kind of took it as, you know, almost as an insult that, okay, so you all think that that's the only way that I can play, and I, I really did. <clears throat> and so, the thing about it, we made adjustments. I'll never forget. They was trying to teach us a different way of backpelling, and uh, you know, cause you couldn't touch the guys. And I, I wasn't told, bought in. I didn't buy into it. So I still played bump and run and I and you know when I got off I I wasn't turning my back when a receiver uh broke into his route. And so still went on and you know, we were able to win four more I mean two more Super Bowls. But fast forward to when I retired and when my kids start talking about data, they got a rule named after you. You know, and I I took a a whole different perspective on it uh, to this day, and now my grandkids are talking about the Mel Blunt rule, and they got a a rule named after their grandfather. And and so it's a a proud thing. I'm really, you know, I go from one extreme to the other because at first, you know, I was almost insulted uh, to now being— you know, real proud to know that I had such an impact on the game that they would change the rules because of the way I played and, and name it a Mel Blunt rule. So it's just been a tremendous journey. And um, those I get, the more I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, that's that's cool. The ultimate honor. Somebody said, um, I read somewhere, somebody said, uh, it's the most important non-safety-related rule change in 50 years. And somebody else said the only other person who they specifically changed rules because the person was so good at it was was you know one of the pioneers of the game Amos Alonzo Stagg, the coach. Uh, they had to you know change rules because he was dominating the game so much. So uh, yeah, kind of the ultimate honor, I guess. Um, now I read about. Uh,
2: go ahead. I'm sorry, uh, Rich, but yeah, I, and you know I I was just at the Super Bowl, and. Um, you know, there were a lot of players there, uh, and there was a player who came up and said, man, he said, when I saw Mel Blunt, and they said he was a cornerback, I knew right away I wasn't going to make it into the NFL, but the guy went on and uh, became a Hall of Famer. And uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, I was, I was big and tall for my size, and I had... A, you know wingspan that was unheard of at that position and but the key thing was that i could run and i can i could change directions and so it was a big advantage to me playing against receivers especially down around the red zone because i had height i had reach and i had speed and quickness
1: yeah yeah i um I mentioned earlier, I'd spoken to Charlie Joyner and I asked him, you know, toughest DBs to go up against. And, and obviously you don't, you don't want to forget names, but he said, let's just put it this way. I always knew where Ronnie Lott was on the field and Mel Blunt with that length and the arms and the speed. He's like, he could just eat you up. (laughs) Uh, Uh Those are the two guys who you were trying to figure out, like, where are they? What do I need to do? Um, So, well, and speaking of receivers uh, what was it like in practice playing against Swan and Stalworth? I mean, how, how much did Chuck have you guys go against each other? And, and what was it like covering, you know, effectively two Hall of Famers?
2: Oh, man, we look, that was that was what it was all about. You know, we challenged each, uh, each other in practice and uh, and we took pride in not letting them catch a ball. And they took pride in trying to catch one on us. And so it was it was a battle and, but you know what? it made us all better because when we got in games, it was easy because we had practice against the best receivers all week. So when we got in games and we was going up against big time receivers like Charlie Jorner, uh, uh, Isaac Curtis, um, guys who you know, everybody was um, afraid of, we, we took it, we, we really took pride in just shutting people down. I mean, that, that was the attitude of every, every player on that defense. Sure. Going against Star Worth and Swan, it just made us all better. We made them better, and they made us better.
1: Yeah. Who, who were the guys on, you know, on the other teams where, I mean, obviously, you know, your team's success spoke for itself, but who were the guys where you, needed, you knew you needed your A game that day when you played them?
2: Well, there was a guy in Cleveland named Greg Pruitt, and I tell you what, we knew – when we got when when we were playing against that guy, we better have our A game. And Cincinnati had Cincinnati had some great players. Um, uh, you know, Kenny Anderson was a great quarterback. Uh, he got rid of the ball real quick. But you know, Bill Walsh. That's that's kind of where that West Coast started. at. you yeah. know, um, and then you know you get a guy like Earl Campbell coming to your conference. You got to face him twice a, a a year. Then you know you better you better put your big boy pants on and, and be ready to play. So there wasn't a lack of competition. And every week we knew that it was going to be a tough game. Yeah. I, I uh, When I was
1: speaking to Gary Fencek, he said, he said, I played in the NFL with a 34-inch waist. Campbell's thighs were 35 inches. He's like, imagine that coming at you. <laughs> yeah. I, guess.
2: I know. He was... He was something, man. Uh, we we knew we had to be ready to play. When Earl came into the league, we hadn't seen nothing like him. I, the NFL hadn't seen anything like him. He was big, he was fast, strong, <clears throat> and he would hurt you. So, you know, but we were able to get through that. And um, I think, uh, you know, the, the AFC at that time, uh, just a lot of great players and there are a lot of great players now but the game is different uh you know players are more protected which is a good thing and so it's always been competition you get that level there's no easy there's no easy outs that's for sure
1: sure who who were um Who were some of the quarterbacks? I mean, obviously, you mentioned Ken Anderson. You saw him twice a year for, you know, the bulk of your career. Who were some of the other, you know, obviously a couple of legendary Super Bowl games against Roger Staubach. Who who were some of the quarterbacks where, you know, you always knew that they, you know, they were were coming?
2: Well, there was um, Greasy down in Miami. We had, um, you know, we played against Joe Namath. Uh, he was kind of going towards the end of his career, but we played against him. Um, you know, Houston had a good, good good quarterback, and Cleveland had a good, and Brian Sipes they they had a good quarterback. I mean, they, there was there was good quarterbacks everywhere. Uh, Stabler, um, you know, Dan Pastorina down in Houston. I mean, just hey, look, every team had the best that they could find, and. Um, and those guys could sling it, and so we knew, you know, um, we knew we had to play. Uh, yeah. The quarterback uh, that Charlie Johnson played with out in uh, San Diego. Um, Dan
1: Fouls.
2: Dan Fouts. You know these these guys are all Hall of Famers. I mean, we we played against some we played against some good quarterbacks.
1: Yeah, um, and and you guys had what was it five straight years you played the Raiders in the postseason. So you, there was no shortage of uh, going up against Ken Stabler in big money games.
2: Ken Stabler, uh, Burt Jones. I mean, you, you could just go on and on, but Stabler, man, look, (laughs) this guy was, he was a warrior. He he definitely was. And, you know, left-handed through the ball. I mean, he, he was just, he was a competitor too. And uh, I think, you know, guys like that, man, just, you know, they are all the reason why that the NFL is where it is today. Just great players helped build this game to what it is. And and kind of was a, a blueprint of what quarterbacks should be and what they should look like and how they should perform. And, and so, you know, I even played against Doug Williams. He came in with Tampa Bay, uh, big, strong, big-time arm. Uh, so there were, there were plenty of good quarterbacks around.
1: Sure. Sure. Well, um, I guess the two things I would, I would like to hear uh, about at this point, point. one is after you retired, you went to work for the NFL for six or seven years for Pete Rozelle uh, in a player relations role. Um, and then and kind of simultaneously, you were starting up first in Georgia and then in Pennsylvania, the Mel Blunt youth home. Uh, I would love to, you know, hear like a minute or two about what it was like working in NFL headquarters. And then, you know, please tell me about the youth homes, which, you know, is something you've been working on for, you know, you've been running for the better part of four decades now.
2: Well, you know, I, I think one of the best things that ever happened to me was when I went to work for the uh, National Football League, working on the Pete Rozelle, working with Roger Goodell and Joe Brown and Pete Abitani, Now. Um, uh, Roger, obviously, is the commissioner now, but uh, he was a guy that I worked with, uh, along with Pete Appertan. Both of those guys are still there. Pete Appertan is an um, kind of an assistant to the commissioner. But I learned so much about the game off the field, and I, I, it was just a tremendous uh, experience and an opportunity for me to learn more about you know, the, the the business of football, and so that was a great experience, and then uh, while doing that, Rich, I was, I, I just had in my heart uh, a desire to try to help kids because I know what, what my background was and where I came from, and so I had a, a unique experience. I had in the in the 70s when we were winning Super Bowls, I went to, I would go back home, and I had Nieces, you know, eighth graders, ninth graders, kids who were my nieces and nephews, and they would go back to school and and, and tell their friends their uncle Mel was home. Well, after school, uh, parents would be bringing their kids out to the farm, and they want you to take pictures, sign autographs, throw the football, and I saw more in their eyes than just that. I I saw a real uh, yearning for. You know, kids just wanted, they wanted hope. They wanted help. And so we started We started the Mel Blunt Youth Home there in Vidalia, Georgia, out on the farm where I grew up, where I worked in the fields. And basically what I wanted to do, I wanted those kids to have the same kind of work ethic experience that I have, learning a lot about responsibility, Um respecting life, you know, taking care of animals and uh you know having that responsibility of feed and then making sure because that animal depends on you and because I thought I felt that's what we needed and I still to this day feel that that's what a lot of our kids are missing. Just you know having respect for one another and having respect for life. And if you look what's happening in our communities with kids killing each other, not respecting the elderly, all these things that we're trying to do <clears throat> with the youth home and with the Mel Blunt Youth Leadership Initiative. And so we've even gone a step further now that we are, you know, we've been doing this, like you say for 40-plus years. Uh, we've teamed up with an organization called Nexus Dental Systems, and this is a national group that is educating people about sleep apnea, apnea. Sleep apnea is—it's a serious problem. It's a huge problem. Uh, you know, obviously, we've we've lost people in the NFL from it. Um, Reggie White, for an example, and so it's a problem. And like one out of five Americans suffer from sleep disorder breathing, and the majority of these people don't even know they have the problem. So, what we're trying to do—we're trying to fix that issue. The other thing is kids are in danger as well. And so many of the health problems and the behavior problems that we deal with at the youth home and, and, and young people, you know, can be attributed to um, sleep disorder. You know, kids are not getting enough rest. They're having problems breathing while they're, while they're sleeping. And so we, we're trying to fix those problems, trying to educate people, and we want to get them help and make them better so they can be productive citizens because, the best, the best resources we have is our young people, and so that's what we're trying to do. And for anybody that's out there listening, you know, obviously we want you to get involved and learn more about sleep apnea. Um, want you to get get screened, you know, get screened so you can find out if you have that issue. It's a, it's a real serious issue, and so they can go to dreamsleep.rest. And get more information about who we are and what we're doing, and so those are some of the things I'm I'm really focused in on now because we just want to take it to another level, keep reaching kids, keep making them better, and getting them in a position where in a situation where they can be productive.
1: Right, that's great. That's great. And that and you the the first one opened in Georgia back in the early '80s,
2: right? We opened the Boys Home in 1983 in Vidalia, Georgia. Still up and running. We got a lot of kids there from all over the country. And um, then in 1989, I came here outside of Pittsburgh and, and bought a piece of property, and we built and developed a home here. And we're doing similar the same things, but we kind of we got smart over the years, and we start diversified and doing a lot of day programs so we can reach more kids and, and get more bang for the buck. And it's been, been really great. And if you're been in this area, we'd love for you to come and see us. And for people who want to know more about us, they can, they can find us on Facebook or they can go to our, our website, MelBlunt.com, and uh, they can stroll under the different pages and, and find us on the MelBlunt Youth Leadership initiative and we'd, we'd love to hear from you love for you to see what we're doing okay that's great
1: well thank you for that and um i guess i guess i would love to just wrap up you're a product of an hbcu southern university and kind of very interesting things you know happened over the last couple of years deon sanders takes the head job at jackson state she has a lot of success both on the field but also recruiting eddie george goes to tennessee state Um, what's your take on some of those moves and, um, yeah, I'd just love to, you know, kind of hear your thoughts on that.
2: I think it's the best thing ever happened to, um, the HBCUs. And, you know, when you get, get, you get someone like Deion Sanders or Eddie George, uh, they bring instant credibility. Um, I think it helps in recruiting. It helps as far as fundraising for your program and uh it's just a tremendous um uh, uh, turn of events that has happened um uh, you know i i think one of the things uh, since we're talking we we're, we're doing this interview in this black history month you know the the situation with george floyd um i think it has it touched the conscience of america uh corporate america white america and uh we we've seen uh, more uh, concerns about what's happening in our in our communities and our at our universities. I think I think the corporate uh, pocketbooks have have loosened up. They're starting to be more support for for the universities. Uh, I think with someone like Dion and Eddie George coming in, uh, young people have starting to realize that they can go to these HBCU universities and and learn and grow and get educated and still have the same opportunities to pursue if it's in sports or business or whatever it is. And so, you know, it is it, some interesting times that are going on in our country and I think the time is now for 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 black america to take advantage of it. And make things better for the future, as, far as our young people are concerned.
1: Well, Mel Blunt, I have to tell you, uh, thank you very much for coming on to my podcast, Chasing Hardware. It's been a pleasure to listen to you as you, you know, kind of talk about growing up in Georgia, your years at Southern, and and you know some of the competition you faced there. Obviously, the you know the uh, incredible run uh, you and the rest of the Steelers had, uh, and then what you've been up to with the Mel Blunt, Mel Blunt Youth Home, et cetera. Since uh, since you retired, Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you very much, Mel, for coming on to Chasing Hardware.
2: Thanks a lot, Rich. Good talking with you. Excellent.
1: Take care. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley band brought us in, and the suburbs with "Life Is Like" are going to take us out. Speak to you next time.
2: Life is like, life is like, life is like what